0: Got to have the gong. Thanks so much, Sean. And uh, we do look forward to being back at the Happy Dog. Hello and welcome, everybody, to the third virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World or Virtual World or All of the Worlds. I am Tony Ganser, host and producer for Northeast Ohio's NPR station, WCPN. With nine weeks to the 2020 general election and the pandemic showing no sustained signs of abating, there are renewed concerns about the safety, integrity, and security Of American electoral processes and structures. Intelligence officials continue to warn that foreign actors, especially from Russia, China, and Iran, are trying to disrupt this year's voting with disinformation and attempted cyber attacks. Chief among these concerns are the fragility of online state voter registration systems and the expanded use of mail-in or other experimental online voting systems and just a few days ago director of national intelligence john ratcliffe announced the house and senate intelligence panels will no longer receive in-person briefings on foreign interference in the 2020 election today we'll talk with a panel of experts about the potential for foreign interference in the 2020 election and the United States response to threats, uh, both real or imagined. Before we get into the conversation, though, I do want to thank the City Club sponsors and donors who support these virtual forums. You can find a full list at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can also become a member at cityclub.org. You can also support your local public radio station if you want to, uh, like wcpn.org, just to pick one totally randomly, of course. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions, and we encourage it. You can text them to 330 541 5794 it's on your screen 3305415794 you can also tweet them at the city club i have my screen up here i've just been told we do have questions coming in which is fantastic don't be shy please send them i try to fit all of them in and actually it makes for a, a more dynamic conversation if we uh, weave them in as we go now to our panel Tonight, I am joined by Dr. Zach Cooper, senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, co-director for the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Thank you so much for being here.
1: It's fantastic to be with you. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, We obviously wish we could do it all in person at the Happy Dog, but uh, great to be able to be with you this way instead.
0: We'll take a rain check for sure. Uh, Dr. Uh, Germa Paris is also with us, visiting assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Case Western Reserve University. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, thanks
2: for having us. And yeah, it would be great if we could do this in person, but
0: it's great that we can do it virtually at least. We'll take what we can get at this point. Uh, And also with us is uh, Brett Schaefer, Media and Digital Disinformation Fellow for the Alliance for Securing Democracy. He's filling in for Laura Rosenberger, who was originally scheduled to participate, was called away on a personal matter. Uh, We thank her and also Brett for uh, stepping in.
3: Thanks, Tony. Looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely, uh, so to start this conversation, I think it might be good for all three of you just to set the table for us. Um, how big a deal is foreign interference because we hear a lot about it from the media, uh, but in terms of how much uh, we're actually being targeted by state actors, how much our electoral process is is actually a target or or you know being um, part of some master plan for, for state actors. I wonder if each of you could, uh, could address that. Start with uh, maybe Zach.
1: Sure. Well, it's a, it's a great question, Tony, uh, and Brett will get into this more, I know, as well. Uh, we're part of a 20-person uh, think tank research institution in Washington and, and in Europe as well uh, that focuses solely on this issue, and I can tell you uh, we have more work than we have time. So I think the short answer is uh, foreign influence in our electoral processes and our democracy are a major issue. They're something we absolutely have to pay attention to. Um, and, and maybe the clearest way to demonstrate this is the statements that we've seen just in the last four weeks or so from the, uh, from the U.S. government, from the intelligence community about the kind of foreign interference we're seeing heading into the 2020 elections. And here i would really focus on two countries the first is russia and the second is china uh, the assessment from the intelligence community is that russia is using a range of measures to primarily denigrate former vice president biden and what it sees as an anti-russia establishment uh, and that some kremlin-linked actors are also seeking to boost president trump's candidacy on social media and russian television uh, they are using uh, all kinds of measures, many of which we track, and Brett can talk more about that, uh, and they are very active in these, in these endeavors. And then uh, turning quickly to China, I, the, the assessment on China is a bit different. Uh, the intelligence community assesses that China prefers President Trump, uh, That sorry, prefers that President Trump does not win re-election. But they do not assess that china is doing the same kinds of activities to actively interfere as the russians are what they do assess is that beijing is taking some actions that it recognizes may have the effect of altering the presidential race in some way but the intelligence community doesn't assess that that's actually necessarily the purpose of those actions so for example uh China is very frustrated that the United States is banning TikTok. It is possible that China is going to stop the sale of TikTok to an American company. That could have electoral implications, but that's not necessarily the point of those uh, interference uh, of those efforts. So I think that's a, that's a really quick overview and I know my other panelists will delve into this more, but the bottom line for me is this is something we absolutely have to pay attention to. It goes to the core of our democracy, the ability of the American people to decide who our leaders are is uh, probably the most important thing for all of us in our governments. And if we can't protect that, then we're gonna be in big trouble, not just in the 2020 election, but in the years ahead as well.
0: Zach, you mentioned uh, brett maybe brett do you want to pick up the baton there and uh, you take a swing
3: sure i mean I, I do think it is important to stress though that sometimes when the media covers this there's a tendency to look at foreign interferences either like a 10 on the threat level or a one so you either kind of look at everything that happens as being a major threat or you dismiss it as a hoax and like most things you know the reality is somewhere in between i mean exactly out there they're clearly huge threats uh, to our democracy, to you know, our electoral processes, but I think it's equally problematic sometimes when we blow some things out of proportion. And to give you an example of that today, you know, Facebook took down a network of pages and accounts that they linked back to the internet research agency, which of course is the organization that was involved in election interference in 2016. But the pages really didn't have much of an impact at all. And I mean, I do think it is important to to kind of put things into perspective that like, yes, we have to be on guard and and Facebook and Twitter and others are doing a better job of policing their platforms. But I think we also have to be careful about not looking at, you know, every fake page that's set up as somehow being, uh, you know, a true threat that we need to kind of put at the sort of five alarm fire kind of uh, in, in the five alarm fire category. But as that kind of laid out, you know, we do track um, consistently the messaging coming out of known state-backed um, media channels and also diplomatic accounts. So what we've seen uh, coming out of Russia, we've seen a very similar sort of messaging strategy that we saw in 2016. And you know, that is largely to try to um, divide Democrats. So looking at issues that uh, would sort of split progressives from centrists. Uh, but we've also seen some of these efforts to play up what would be more along the lines of like a hack and leak operation so we've seen these biden poroshenko tapes um, the so-called nabu leaks that are these recordings of then vice president biden speaking with then president of ukraine and these have come out in sort of a drip by drip fashion very similar to the hack and leak campaign that we saw with the podesta and clinton emails so when i i think when we look in the sort of information space at the threats there the biggest threat I see is, is a hack and leak campaign and, and that's for all of the actors involved. That's where they really can um, influence an election more than just putting out sort of divisive content because to be frank, when we talk about efforts to sow discord among Americans, I mean we're doing a pretty good job of that ourselves right now unfortunately. So I, I, I'm not quite as concerned about what we saw in 2016 which was just sort of carpet bombing social media with divisive content, with efforts to try to um, ramp up racial tensions and things like that, only because really uh, the environment is so bad right now that I don't think that would have much of an impact. But I do think, again, just looking at the information space, we have to be very, very concerned about hacking and leaking uh, sensitive information or putting out uh, potentially sort of an artificial intelligence, uh, a deep fake kind of video right before election day that could swing a few votes uh, for people who are still kind of undecided, which I'm not sure how large of a group that is at this point. But again, that that's my real concern.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of things up in the air and we won't know until after the election, really. Uh, uh, Germa, where do you uh, come down on this about foreign interference and, and how big a threat this is?
2: Well, uh, piggybacking on what uh, Brent mentioned, uh, I think the fact just that we're in a a very partisan, very tightly, um, tight election. Um, Those two factors make uh, any interference possibly very consequential. Um, So how big is the threat? I I think it adds to the noise. There's already a problem with disinformation in general um, since social media seems to be a center for where our information is distributed and it's polarized, um, it's algorithm driven Um, And generally, the population doesn't trust the news media. um, And so any disinformation campaign just adds to that. The last election was decided uh, between three states by 70,000 votes. So really, any disinformation that's added to that can possibly be very very consequential. So I I, I, I totally agree that it it doesn't have to be a 10 um, in order for it to be consequential. Um, It's just adding to an already, um, a situation in which the electorate already does not trust the information that's already out, that's out there. And so, yeah, hack and leaks, or even just the sort of the organic disinformation campaigns that were run, um, that were sponsored by the Russians, um, these could be possibly quite consequential in a very closely contested election. So yeah, I, I, I see the threat as a object, uh, objectively, maybe it's a five, but, um, Considering that we already are very divided, no one trusts the media, and election is probably going to be very close, it could be incredibly consequential. So it could be, you know, higher than a five in actuality.
0: To to your point, uh, Brett, maybe if you want to address this first, if, if somebody else wants to get in, how do we distinguish... Vladimir Putin being seen as kind of this mastermind who who knows everything about America and he's just pulling the strings to a bunch of uncoordinated attempts just at um, unbalancing America in some way. There is no end game necessarily. It's just Let's mess with the Americans for a while and see what happens. How do we know what is a coordinated attack and what is just kind of poking the bear to see what happens? Uh, Brett, maybe you want to start and then Germa, if you want to get in there.
3: Well, to some degree, I, I do think the coordinated strategy is, is to not really have an end game. The, the Russians, I think, thrive when America is chaotic and disorganized and fighting uh, when we're fighting amongst ourselves. So I'm not sure that there is actually a true end game that Vladimir Putin has sat down in the Kremlin and sort of mapped out the A to B to C to D. Uh, I, I think it's frankly easier for them to just keep throwing a bunch of stuff out there. 90% of it won't work, it won't land, but something might, and it might be influential, and I don't think they know where that leads to, um, because really what they're looking for is, is to try to undermine U.S. society, and that's again where, where China is a little bit different. I don't think China's strategy is to just create chaos in the U.S. for, for many different reasons that Zach would be able to go into. So, you, you know, I, I also look to your point about maybe attribution of who's really behind this. That's also a question that we always have. And one of the challenging things I think as we go forward is, you know, it was easy enough going back to 2016 to look at uh, these really kind of coordinated, widespread campaigns and point to a state actor and say that, you know, there had to be some Russian kind of government money behind this or at least, uh, you know, tacit approval to, to, for the IRA to run these things. Now I think the threat actors are so wide and so diverse uh, that it will be more challenging to be able to determine whether or not a government is really backing a coordinated influence campaign or whether or not it is independent actors sometimes who are just messing around. Or, you know, the real concern is these sort of disinformation for hire services that have popped up over the last four years. In In the Facebook takedown today that I mentioned earlier, you know, all of the coverage today has been on the few pages connected to the Internet Research Agency. What they also took down was a U.S. company who was running a, basically a strategic communications campaign that they had put $3 million plus into interfering in Latin America. So now you have these for-profit companies who are running disinformation campaigns for you. So that means a bunch of independent actors, you know, anyone with a little bit of money and bad intentions or or has a you know political intentions uh, they can kind of outsource some of these things so i think we 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 would be mistaken to only look at the presidential election too because it's hard to swing a, a major national election where people tend to be pretty entrenched in their camps but if you're talking about a down ballot race where it's not you know 70,000 a few 100,000 votes you're talking about a few hundred or a few thousand votes that's not particularly challenging, uh, to be able to run a disinformation campaign there and really swing the results in a more local election.
0: Yeah,
2: no, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I think the, I don't necessarily think there's a, an end game per se. Um, I mean, I mean, just from looking at this, there have been, you know, for instance, that Russians who seem to favor Trump or they try to in, in influence the, um, the president, the French presidential election favoring the national front. So sometimes they have had actors that they wanted to, they preferred, but I think just uh general discord and um, amongst democratic states seems to, yeah, seems to, Russia seems to feel that they're, they're in a bit more beneficial position when these democratic states, which are oppositional are kind of confused within. Um And I think if they can sow that discord, I think that's, that's good enough for them. And then for the for-profit aspect of it, I, I, there's a lot of money to be made in disinformation. You know, if you have a, a, a media ecosphere that we have, which is um, completely polarized operating in two different epistemologies, there's a lot of money to be made by throwing in some disinformation and the Russians, you know, the, the, the Russian leadership would see this as beneficial because this so this also aids their, let's just muck things up. But th- those private actors, there's something to gain for them without even uh, besides the political view, so uh, I do think that there is a, ni- a nice uh, coordination of interest between the private and uh, state-sponsored or or the state, in which this um, doesn't play out well for democracies because it is it, it, it's not just the U.S. but in in all of, uh, it seems to be Western Europe as well. Um, there are because the news is so socially media-driven; it's that's algorithm-driven. It's network driven. This uh, breeds these kind of uh, information uh, silos where you can, you know, breed this kind of disinformation. This this is perfect for both parties, both private and state. So um, I don't think there has to be an endgame. Um, Discord um, and some profit, I think, is a good is good enough.
0: Zach, my impression is that Russia is comfortable in the Wild West, whereas China likes to have someone that if they can't manipulate, they at least can logically follow how the game might go. Is that accurate for how China might be interacting here?
1: I think that's very accurate from what we've seen in in the past, at least from China, that um, in general, the Chinese Communist Party would prefer to improve views of China rather than tear down other countries, which is very much what the Russians have been doing. Um, So that traditionally has been a big difference. Now, we've seen a little bit of a change in the last year. So I'll give you one example, which is that um, some of you may have seen this disinformation that was pushed out by the Chinese government. Uh, and by the spokespeople for the Chinese foreign ministry, in fact, uh, where they actually suggested that COVID had come to China from the United States. They had a couple of different conspiracy theories. Uh, we run a website that Brett is in charge of that actually tracks these in detail. Um, you know, so this was a little bit more uh of an active disinformation push than we've usually seen from Beijing. But I think in general, um, China wants to control the narrative. They want it to be good for China. What I will say, and this goes back to your last question, is um, we shouldn't assume that China or Russia are 10 feet tall. um, You know, the places that China knows best, that you would think it would be the most well-prepared to manage a disinformation campaign or an information campaign are the two places that have democratic elections that are uh, technically part of china and that would be taiwan uh, and hong kong and those are the two places over the last few years that the chinese communist party has done the most damage to their own cause right? They don't really understand exactly how those democracies are functioning and how their influence is having an effect. I think they would have to be pretty cautious about what any effort to weigh in on the American election would actually do as as a result, which is part of why I think you see the U.S. intelligence community saying, yes, maybe it's true that China would prefer Donald Trump to be out of office, but it's not at all clear that they're actually acting on that in any serious way.
0: In uh, preparing for this event, I read about a study out of University of Hong Kong, I believe. It was looking at U.S. interference in foreign elections. And it was comparing covert versus overt influence of uh, foreign campaigns, uh, leaders undermining them. Uh, and what counted in this in overt influence would be Obama saying, I prefer X candidate, for example. Um and the bump in the election was 2 to 5% influence, which was um, uh, recorded in this. To play devil's advocate here, what is so different about Russia or China or anyone else wanting to see a particular outcome or putting forth uh, their ideas trying to influence American voters from the United States influencing south america for example
1: which which is a big deal uh zach maybe
0: you want to take that first
1: i think this is such an important question so the first thing i would say is that um, when the united states tries to support democratic elections which we very actively do right Um, we have major uh establishments that uh through the national endowment for democracy so there's a republican and a democratic version of this Uh, One's called IRI, the other's called NDI. They actively support democracies around the world. And the goal is to help them improve their democracies, both um, help people vote, help people understand how civil society is supposed to function. So it's absolutely true that we do work around the world to try and support democracies. What, in my view, we shouldn't be doing, and we tend not to do, is get in the business of picking individual candidates. and to the extent that the u.s is active abroad almost all of these activities are completely transparent you can go onto websites and actually find where the money is going and who we're supporting and what the civil society groups are and that's because the united states succeeds when other democracies succeed i think what you see from the russians is the exact opposite russia and current russian leaders think that they succeed when democracies fail and so i i I understand that there have been times when America hasn't upheld its principles on this matter. I mean, we can go back through the list and and there are unfortunately more than there should be. But I think, you know, our goal is fundamentally different than the goal that we see from the leading authoritarian powers in this respect.
0: I mean, there is an executive order that uh, the United States will not assassinate uh, foreign leaders for a reason, because there could be meddling at the highest levels. Uh, Gurma, did you have a point you wanted to make it look like you were nodding there?
2: Uh, um, Yeah. I um, I, I guess I would take a more realist perspective on this um, because we we do have a sort of history of interfering in in, in other countries' elections that isn't that great as well. Um, But just from a realist perspective, I mean, the state is, one of the main functions of the state is to ensure that you have a, at least the American state, to ensure that you have a proper, properly functioning democracy. And if there's an outside force that is partic- uh, manipulating it, it is the duty of the state to do something about that. Um, independent of whether or not we have maybe not acted according to our principles in the past, um, I think it's um, upon the state to actually act and make sure that the democracy that they have is is, is not manipulated. Um, And I don't necessarily think that we have to justify doing that, even if we in the past have not always um, lived up to those ideals. Um, We should investigate that as a separate question to me um, and say like, we haven't at times been the best in this area, but that doesn't mean that we should let others interfere with our elections. as some sort of karma or something like that. Um, So I I guess I would see it from a realist standpoint and maybe just separate those questions. Um, I think the state always has a, a responsibility to make sure that there's no interference just because there was interference before or that we interfered in ways that were not maybe the best. Doesn't mean that we should allow others to interfere in our election.
3: Brett? I would just add that I think there's a big difference between influence and interference. So every country tries to influence other countries. I mean, that's why we have diplomats. That's why public diplomacy exists. So while I would agree that I don't think it's necessarily proper for US officials to directly weigh in on a specific candidate in a democratic election somewhere. uh, You know, there's a huge difference between doing that overtly and transparently. President Obama saying he prefers a specific outcome Uh, versus running a covert campaign on social media that uh, presents itself as being uh, domestically driven, setting up fake uh, accounts, fake websites, fake news outlets, and trying to manipulate public opinion from within. So I think that's really the key difference. And to be fair, I think this is sort of the difference between what we've seen come out of Russia and China. China... Yes, their messaging has been quite critical of President Trump uh, that we've seen through their official um, state-backed channels. uh, But we haven't really seen evidence of them setting up widespread networks online uh, purporting to be Americans on the left or right of the political spectrum to try to manipulate uh, public opinion that way, which is obviously something Russia does. So I do think, you know, we, we also need to look at the difference between covert, overt, and that gets to, you know, influence, which I think is acceptable and interference, which is not.
0: We do have uh, some questions. I'll try to weave them in as we uh, speak here. Uh, Brett, if you want to take this one, do we know who is behind QAnon, and is it Vladimir Putin?
3: uh i i wish we, we we'd figure that out i i no we don't know i highly 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 doubt it is putin and the russians um you know we have seen some evidence going back several years of QAnon messaging getting a bump from Russian linked actors. But this is quite common, frankly, that they're actually uh, sort of the second movers of a domestic campaign where they just sort of jump on the bandwagon, they throw a little more gas on the fire, uh, they help spread a message a little bit farther and a little bit wider. But I think it's highly, highly unlikely that a Russian actor has created QAnon. um, And I, I have no idea who's behind it.
0: We could have broken some news here uh, <laughs> if if you knew, uh, Zach. Maybe if you want to take this one, what constitutes foreign interference per se? We've been talking about this a little bit, but can you compare it in terms of risk to domestic threats against democracy or against our our the legitimacy of our electoral process?
1: Sure. Well, I think the place to start is that they're intimately connected, right? And that actually, um, when we have domestic risks in our democracy and uh, domestic strains, those are the things that our foreign interference actors actually play upon. Um, And, you know, Brett brought this up before, right? Um, When we have imperfections in our democracies, those are always the messages that you see being pushed Uh, on social media by some of these foreign actors, right? So um, in fact, fixing some of those domestic problems is going to be critical and not just critical to our domestic security, but I think increasingly now to our national security. And so I I think that's an important framing. Um, Now, that doesn't actually get to the question of how do we fix our uh, domestic problems? you know, I I think Ohio has been very wise in some of the activities that it's done to try and secure elections in Ohio. Uh, and that's hugely important. So um, some states have not done nearly as much as Ohio has. And, um, you know, the state governments have a critical role to play here. Local governments have a critical role to play here. Um, and I think we're going to see a bit of variation, frankly, in this election, right? We'll see some states that get ballots out early that let everyone who's allowed to vote vote they get those ballots back early hopefully and are able to count them um and some states that are going to be struggling to do so and may not start counting ballots until the night of the uh, election in which case we're not going to get results from those states for quite some time i think there are going to be a lot of lessons learned and and this is one of those places where uh you know the american democracy is supposed to be uh sort of 50 studies and individual democracies and how they work. And I I think we're going to see that in action this November.
0: Uh, The next question is related to that. So maybe if you want to take this to Zach and if anybody else wants to to jump in, please do. Uh, This person asks if the lack of backup written ballots makes some states voting systems less secure, would not mail in ballots for those states provide some sort
1: of fraud check? Yeah, so um, uh, Brett may want to add a a little bit on this. So look, there are absolutely some concerns about voter fraud. Uh, I will tell you my personal view is that those are largely overstated. Um, I I say that as someone who comes from the Republican side of the aisle. Um, I think in general, the main problem that we've seen with voting is not people voting too much, it's people not being able to get their votes counted. Um, and so I think uh, as we look towards 2020, you know, what we need to be focusing on, if, if it were up to me, would be getting ballots out to everybody that needs to vote and making sure that they can do so safely and reliably. I think mail-in ballots are, uh, in our current situation, about the best way that we have to do that. Um, obviously, there's some challenges around the mail itself. There are some challenges around making sure that um, voter registration gets in in time so that people can actually get their ballots uh, and then be able to get them back in in time. But I think that's really where we we should be focusing for this election.
0: Brett, did you have something to add?
3: I mean, I completely agree with that. I, w- I would just add that I, I think... The sort of disruptions to the status quo in terms of the just procedure of voting uh, creates a huge opportunity for bad actors, foreign and domestic, to launch disinformation campaigns questioning the legitimacy of the vote count and results. So, you know, we typically talk about threats to the election in terms of disinformation is like before Election Day, Election Day itself. And after Election Day, I think typically most people don't pay a ton of attention to after Election Day because for the most part, we have trusted the results that have come out. Uh, this year, I think the after election day is the huge, huge area of concern, um, partly for what Zach pointed out, that we may not, and I think it's likely, we, we will not know who won on, on the 4th. Uh, so you could have a few days, you could have a week, hopefully it's not any longer before we have results, and that space will be um, extremely problematic. But I think just because the way we're voting this time is completely different from what we've done in the past. That is going to create a ripe environment for people to spread disinformation about voter fraud, about votes being thrown out, not counted. Um, So I am really concerned about what happens after Election Day this year.
0: Gurma, you agree with that? This is bigger than dangling and pregnant chads? (laughs) Yeah,
2: possibly. Um, I've also read there's, there's a divide in those that will used mail-in ballots versus those that are in person, and it's partisan. Um, so you may see this, these strange uh, election results on election day where more Republicans, for instance, are voting in person. And so it looks like uh, there's a huge Trump victory. And then there's just a load of mail-in ballots, which either reverses that or, you know, or evens that out. And I do think after election is actually going to be, because of the disinformation that's already out there, the, the lack of trust of, Uh, of the system in general, um, from the people and the partisan nature of everything. I do think, yeah, uh, I totally agree that after the election day, um, the disinformation that's been already sowed, um, and it's going to be a, a problem. We've normally, like the election comes, the results come in, we may be unhappy, or happy, but they stand. Um, and I think there's a potential this year that it, that it may not, that it, there may be a lot of, distrust over the results and that's where i think where foreign actors can really contribute to that um you know we like like all everyone has said we do enough to have created this uh distrust and discord but uh, i I do think that uh, foreign actors can add to that add to that noise um and yeah i do think that the that this is gonna be worse than hanging chats potentially. yes
0: which which would have been hard to believe, uh, maybe even a year ago. Uh, just a reminder to viewers: if you have questions uh, for our panelists about something that we talked about or something you want us to talk about, please text them. The number is three three zero five four one five seven nine four on your screen now. Three three zero five four one five seven nine four. You can also tweet them at the City Club and I will continue to weave them in. Uh, Gurma, one of the things that has interested me about Russia, for many years I used to live in Europe and work in Europe, and RT would be in uh, hotels every once in a while, and there was a program called Break the Set, and the host was an American uh, who apparently was a fairly far-left activist um, in the Berkeley scene, and RT recruited her, to host the show, to represent an American view that people need to hear. And uh, I always thought that was really weird as an American watching a Russian uh, outlet trying to tell me what I need to hear about America. And it seems like a lot of talk about what Russia does and what Russia believes is kind of in that same vein, that it's, it's always just presenting something to make you say, what? And then, and then just in that what, they can maybe gain some sort of advantage. Um, any, any food for thought you can offer us uh, with, with the medium and the message?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, that, was, that seems to be the, sort of the types of discord that the Russians were sowing in 2016, like picking out um, groups that you could send messaging to that would create discord that would maybe not get them to go out to vote. So this was like, there's some evidence of this on Facebook towards African-Americans, targeting with messages about like, Hillary being a super president or something like that. Um, But these ways of just sowing discord amongst uh, a sub-constituency so that you can affect their their voting actions. Um, So I, I think, yeah, this would go right in with that and you know you throw out some lefty um that would make america think what this is not the american you know perspective or you know just to sow discord so yeah that i mean that makes sense to me
0: you agree with that brad
3: i I mean one of the things that we do uh, is, is we track all of rt's outputs both through their twitter channels but also on youtube through their websites and categorizing everything RT has put out over the last year on their YouTube channel, on RT America's YouTube channel, under 4% of those videos have discussed Russia at all. So this is Russia's state-backed channel that doesn't talk about Russia. So this is completely different from anyone else's public diplomacy, which is about attracting audiences to you, about presenting a a positive image of yourself, which is of course what China does. All of RT's strategy, particularly uh, aimed at Americans through RT America, is about kind of playing up these divisions and finding you know legitimate voices who have more kind of extreme positions uh typically on the left a little bit on the right more of the sort of libertarian right so what they're great at is finding these you know influencers for lack of a better word you know the soviet times they called them useful idiots if you want to call them fellow travelers they just give a platform to americans who i think come about their opinions genuinely i I think most of the people on rt are not um you know somehow creating uh this persona because they're being paid they're just excellent at, at sort of at finding talent for lack of a better word that will do the work for them because of course you know they're not about attracting audiences to russia they're about repelling them from the west and russia and, and the soviets before them have been very effective at this for a very long time
0: it's always seemed to me, Zach, that this is about adding legitimacy to certain voices to drown out the ones maybe that we would most expect to hear. And as a journalist, I mean, I always want to amplify underrepresented voices, but it seems like this is a whole, whole different
1: thing. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you 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 want to amplify those underrepresented voices as long as they uh, deserve to be amplified, right? And that's that's part of the challenge, I, I think. You know. One thing uh, folks can do, and and, uh, Brett is in charge of this, so he can speak to it more, but um, we have this dashboard called the Hamilton 2.0 dashboard. And you can go on there. You can look at exactly what's coming out of Russia, China, and Iran in terms of their uh, state-backed government-backed information spaces. Uh, You can look at Facebook. You can look at Twitter. Um, and get a lot of data on the kinds of messages that they're pushing. And uh, just as Brett says, you know, it, it is fascinating to see how different these messaging campaigns are. If you look at Russia, it tends not to be about Russia. If you look at China, it's the opposite. The, the number one thing the Chinese will talk about is usually China um, or things that are directly related to Chinese interests in one way or another. Um, and so you, you have some really different efforts by different actors. Um, now, you know, it's possible in the future that we'll see that the Chinese adopt more of a Russian model at some point, but we definitely haven't seen that quite yet. And I think, you know, the, the big takeaway for me from all of this data is that uh, the more polarization we have in our society, the more vectors there are for bad actors to take advantage of. And so part of our job in the public space is to say, you know, here's some truth. Uh, you're gonna get told some things that are not true, and part of our job is to say openly and honestly, you know, look, I understand that you have these beliefs, but they just don't match with reality. Um, and then try and narrow the discussion space, and and also change the way that we actually have those discussions so that we can have them in a in a more civil way. Um, I always sort of like to liken this to you know, you're in a marriage, you have a disagreement with your partner. Um, There's ways to have those disagreements where you can build back afterwards and there are ways that you can't. Um, And I think uh, we've, we've gotten biased the last few years to having these screaming arguments that are not productive where actually people aren't hearing what the other side is saying at all. And part of what I think we need to do in the public space is get back to having more respectful disagreements. It's not that the competition of ideas is a bad thing. It's about how we actually conduct those discussions and debates uh, in our democratic society. Germa, yeah.
2: I, I want to ask Zach a question. Would you take these discussions then off of social media? That seems to be the th- no, that seems to be the form where um, a lot of these discussions are happening. When you say like create a a public sphere where you can have civil debate, where where would that be? Because I I, know I just I'm not being smart. I just don't see it anywhere. I don't see it on TV. I don't see it on social media. I I would love
1: that. I just just where would that be? That's a great question. I, I, I am sympathetic to the view that it's hard to have these uh, contextualized discussions uh, on Twitter, for example, you know, in 200 characters. there's It's just very difficult. Um, so I, I do think there's something to that, that the, the, the actual way that we're talking about uh, our issues in our democracy is maybe less healthy. I also think some of this is, um, you know, the platforms can do a little bit more work to make sure that they're not highlighting the voices that are the most divisive in our society and the most loud. Um, sometimes the people that are most important are not the ones getting the most clicks. And and I think part of the job of the algorithms is to make some decisions about uh, when, when to reward interest and when not to. I, my view, it, is, and some of you may have slightly different views on this, is we're slowly getting to that place. Uh, I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be, but I do think the platforms now are increasingly realizing that they're going to have to make some decisions that may cut down on ad revenue, may cut down on engagement, but over time, they can't continue to exist if they're seen as eroding our democracy from within.
0: Very interesting. Um, Brett, maybe if you want to take this question, uh, we we kind of addressed this earlier, but what other democracies are under threat, and are the strategies uh, by actors such as Russia different depending on the country, or is it kind of a one-size-fits-all, just flood the field with with memes?
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think when you look at some individual countries that we have kind of taken a more in-depth look at... You definitely see some similarities there, um, some overlaps in the messaging. I mean, a consistent messaging a message if you're talking about Russia is to question democracy. Um, you, you know, just to to kind of highlight where democracy doesn't particularly work well for all people. Um, so you see that kind of across the board. So that's a constant. But what Russia is great at is sort of micro-targeting a message for a very specific population. Russia's uh, information website called Sputnik, I think they have 35 different versions of that, including in some like high value countries like Georgia, wh- where they have specific sites for different communities within Georgia. I mean, a country with only a few mil- million people. So they are great at kind of uh, really honing in on very specific issues, uh, very specific problems in countries, and highlighting those. I mean, All of these individual Sputnik sites, they have a a part of the site that is sort of tailored to the audience. So in Romania, for example, they have a section that's always there that essentially talks about how badly Romanians are treated in the European Union. So they understand the local context, they're great at it, and they're great at using that to kind of pick apart that society. So going back to kind of the the bigger question, what other democracies are under threat? I mean, to a degree, all of them, although you know, at very different levels. I think stable democracies like um, you know those in the Scandinavian countries maybe a little bit less, although you know we've seen problems there too in Sweden. Um, the countries that seem to be actually better prepared for this are the ones who have lived with it for the longest time. So the Baltic countries, for example, right on Russia's border, formerly part of the Soviet Union. If you look at their governments and how they're set up and how they combat disinformation, they are way ahead of us. Uh, you know, I spent some time in Lithuania, again a country with a few million people. You go to their Ministry of Defense. I mean, you know, it sort of looks like a a frat house. I mean, there's just not that many people there, and they will pull up kind of their disinformation tracking and how they approach it, and you just kind of back away and say, you know, you guys have this covered. So. Uh, I I think there's different kind of levels of threat, but I think all democracies have kind of awoken to the fact that disinformation and foreign threats can be a real, real big problem.
0: And is Sputnik the one that used to be Ria Novosny? the the state or was that another one i can't keep track of my russian media outlets
3: <laughs> so it's sort of a spin-off Rinabusi still exists uh but you know sputnik they have an international version the kind of mothership exactly. but then it's all of these very localized versions some of which have huge followings and they do amazingly well in latin america and the spanish language mm-hmm. space i mean one of the things that we have noted since we set up our dashboard rt espanol almost every single day is the most engaged with account. So they're doing quite well through their overt media uh, in places that, you know, we tend not to pay quite as much attention to. And like RT doesn't have that much of an impact on American society. I mean, if you pulled hundred Americans, probably 98 wouldn't be able to tell you if they even have RT as a part of, part of their cable package. I mean, it has more influence online. But in Latin America and some other parts of the world, it it is a major, major uh, channel. And there's a ton of influence that's run, again, through their over channels where they don't even have to do some of the more manipulative efforts they do on social media.
0: Uh, We'll uh, get through. We have a few questions here. Uh, I'm not sure who to direct these to. We'll say this one's for Zach. But if someone else wants to jump in, feel free. Uh, The panelists have talked over and over again about transparency why aren't local and state election boards putting on information campaigns explaining to the voters how and why voting uh, the voting public should be trusting the election process in November?
1: That is a great question. So um, we have a fellow in our program who works on elections specifically. Uh, and uh, so he has actually put together a handbook for election officials. And, you know, I think one of the lessons that we're all learning from this process is that we should have been putting a lot more time and energy into the actual management of our elections the last few years. Um, Obviously, Congress is trying to do some of that now, but there's a huge financial gap in the amount of money that um, our elections officials need and what they're actually gonna get for this election. So I think that's a fantastic question. It is the kind of thing that, I hope people, you know, go to their members of Congress and actually support because we're not talking about huge amounts of money here. Um, You know, these are relatively small dollar amounts. And especially I come from the defense world, you know, where we talk in hundreds of billions of dollars or it's not really worth worrying about. Um, You know, we're, we're talking in the hundreds of millions of dollars here to make huge amounts of difference on these issue sets. Um, and so I, I absolutely think that this is something that has to get much more attention and it just hasn't been properly resourced yet.
0: I come from the public radio world. All of those numbers are big. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Germa, Ger- Ger- did did you want to um, chime in on that question, too?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that we, uh, I mean, going back to something that we talked about earlier, I'm not sure that we ever thought that we would be in a position where Election Day would come. And we would doubt the results of the election. I mean, that's been something that we've always assumed. I mean, I, I know, like watching. I always remember, like watching, like uh, CNN or um, on election night. They always make a point of saying, like, how great the democracy is that there's this exchange of power and there's no coup or anything. And it's really not until you know the last election and, and now this one, where like we're now talking about the sanctity of you know of the results. So I don't think that um, from a political standpoint has not been really a priority because it really never really came up. Um, And I think we'd have to get, you know, we'd have to get everybody on board to do that as well. Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of politics around the sanctity of elections right now. That's even political. Um, And until that we see that as a national security issue, not necessarily a partisan issue, then we won't get any movement
0: so connected to that president trump has said this this question president trump has said he might not accept the legitimacy of the election if he loses how would the election be settled if he cries foul and do we even know um gurma maybe you want to take it and then zach
2: i mean that would go to the courts obviously um and we're I, back to know, dangling
0: we, chads again yeah you?
2: i mean um, <laughs> so i it, you know it's it would, it would start with the state Whatever state would be in question, um, it would probably go up to their their state supreme court and then to the uh, full supreme court.
0: Um, so, you know, so potentially, we back- are are we talking about multiple states? I mean, if if the president rejects the legitimacy of the result, then we're going to have multiple court cases for electoral votes in multiple yeah. states. Yeah, I mean, we've never been there because
2: like the Dangling Chad incident was really just about Florida. Um, And even if you go back to the 19th century where you had the Great Compromise, that was about two or three states. And then they got behind closed doors and worked it out. Um, So those are really only only our two examples. One was worked out behind closed doors. The other was worked out in the courts. Um, And the courts really just dealt with it, basically not wanting it to rise to a constitutional crisis. They just dealt with it very... Swiftly and quickly, um, in a way that wasn't necessary. You know, you could argue from a jurisprudence standpoint whether or not you know what they—the ruling that they came up with—whether it was proper or not. But they didn't want it to go to a constitutional crisis. So, if you know, President Trump just doesn't accept the results, um, would he be not accepting the results pertaining to one state or several? That's sort of the question. We've never really, you know, we haven't really. This could be a completely new. New frontier for us. So I, yeah, until we know like what he uh,
0: potentially is complaining about, um, I don't think we can really adequately answer that question. Is this going to be decided in a backroom deal, Zach?
1: No. It's not. I I agree with everything Irma said. I think it's exactly right. And I I actually think Americans should have a fair amount of confidence in what's going to happen in this election. I have no idea what is actually going to happen, but I have a lot of confidence that at the end of the day, this is not a choice that's up to Donald Trump or any other individual person. Um, Just last week, we had the head of the US military come out and say that the U.S. military has absolutely no role to play whatsoever in this decision, which um, I think was an important thing to say. This is this is a constitutional issue. It's not up to the president of the United States. If we don't know who's won the election uh, in mid-January, then the person who's going to be president is not Donald Trump. It's Nancy Pelosi. Um, and so uh, at the end of the day, uh, I have a lot of confidence that our system is going to give us the results. Now, whether the president likes those results or not, I I don't think we're going to know that until, you know, sometime in November. But I I have a huge amount of confidence that if at the end of the day, um, the voting public decides to vote in Joe Biden, um, there are not going to be any options for the president to reject that move. Republicans in Congress would not accept it. Uh, I think if you've learned anything from watching the Supreme Court the last uh, few months, it's that, in fact, John Roberts very much intends to lead a court that uh, is largely apolitical on these kinds of issues. And so I think Americans should have a lot of confidence that this is going to be settled constitutionally the correct way, whether that'll happen the week after the election or three weeks after the election, I, I don't know. But I, you know, I think this is one thing we have to be really clear about is um, this may be a difficult time, but but our system is built for this. And we haven't, um, had the kind of situation ever before that folks are talking about with the president refusing to leave office. And I think the reason is that um, the Constitution is incredibly clear about what happens, and it's really not up to the president to decide whether he likes the election results or not.
0: Just a few more questions as we uh, come to the end of our hour. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, all of you. Uh, Brett, maybe you want to take this one. Uh, We spoke a little about what uh, the platforms are doing now, uh, that they're getting a little more serious. Is their disabling of accounts or censoring certain hashtags or whatever, is that actually having an effect on beating back this wave of influence peddling or, or whatever you want to call it? Or is it just playing whack-a-mole and and you're not really making any progress on the issue?
3: Well, I mean, to some degree, I I think it has had a positive impact. I mean, if you look where we were uh, 2016, even into 2017, when basically all three major platforms were saying nothing happened here. You know, yes, there was a few accounts we found, but there was really no, uh, you know, major interference operation on our platforms. I mean, Zuckerberg, of course, has the famous line of, you know, it's crazy to think that Facebook had a role in the outcome of the election. They're all in a very, very different place now. I I would I would put. Twitter probably at the top of the heap in terms of kind of aggressively going after some of these um, issues on their platform. Uh, But to to varying degrees, they're just way better situated now to deal with these threats than they were a few years ago. Um, That said, they're still vulnerable. And as long as we want kind of an open internet, uh, open social media space, um, there's still a threat there. Um, So, yes, we're in a much, much better place. Uh, But I'm not sure that we are kind of entirely protected from what happens on social media. And I'm not sure we will ever get there because, of course, that would require like more aggressive censorship that we don't really want one thing i would say though is it goes to um, also less of looking at individual pieces of content and where facebook has taken the lead in a positive direction is going after these sort of widespread uh, coordinated inauthentic campaigns so really going to the major threat actors going after the internet research agency not just picking off individual accounts which i agree is is whack-a-mole it's not particularly effective but if you're consistently taking down Um, major campaigns from either a state-backed effort or from a private company, it does have some impact. The one thing I would add too, though, I do think there needs to be a more robust uh, law enforcement component to this. So that comes in kind of two different ways. So one, you know, we have sanctioned a few individuals who are associated with the Internet Research Agency. I I think that needs to be much, much stronger because there need to be more, uh, more costs. That are sort of incurred when people run these kind of operations. But I also think too, that this is sort of a thing that we need to look at, for example, you know, that I threw out earlier about this DC um, you know strategic communications firm that was running this manipulation for hire campaign. Like that that's illegal in many ways because you get into issues of consumer fraud. And there have been a couple cases that have set up a roadmap for this. So when companies run these kind of campaigns, it can't just be, well, your accounts are taken off the platform, which, yes, sets them back a little bit, but, you know, that's a pretty low cost uh, you know, penalty to incur. They need to be taken to court and really hammered uh, because there needs to be deterrence there so that other companies don't just say, like, you know, this is low cost, low risk, very high reward, very profitable. So I do think that there needs to be an answer that's outside of the social media companies. Because, again, at the end of the day, the worst thing Twitter and Facebook can do is take down accounts and maybe name and shame you publicly. But, you know, they can't sanction individuals. They can't, you know, why? I mean, they can take them to court in some regards, but they can't really go after companies that are running widespread disinformation campaigns.
0: And you're against oversight or regulation or putting the platforms under some ABC uh, organization? No, I mean,
3: well... I am for a limited amount of oversight, I think, and and there needs to be some sort of smart regulation of the social media companies. I don't think you create an entirely new sort of like internet body that oversees all of them. I think that's dangerous. So that's what you have in Russia. That's what you have in China. So that would be a win for them. But I do think there needs to be some oversight. There's really an asymmetry of power here with the amount of data that Facebook and Twitter and others have, it's more than the US government has on any citizen. So there has to be some level of oversight. There has to be some level of transparency because as Zach mentioned earlier, so much of our decision-making process right now is based on algorithms that are completely opaque. So at some level there has to be, and again, you can't make all of the algorithms public because bad actors would game them, but just in the same way that we have uh, you know, the banking system uh, where there's some oversight there, uh, we have to do the same thing with the social media companies, where there's someone who can go in, get into the back end, say that, you know, these things are not rigged, they're not game, they're not censoring political content in a way that's designed to throw an election. So yes, I, I do think there there needs to be some oversight, but a limited amount of it.
0: Our uh, last question from a viewer is actually a good question, I think, to end on. So maybe if each of you can um, can take a try at this what lessons can we learn from this moment that could inform future elections, especially as we rely more and more on technology for just about everything? Uh, so Zach, maybe you wanna start and, and then we'll go around.
1: Such a great question to end on. Um, I don't have a, a brilliant single answer. I, I think the the critical thing uh, for me that we should be taking away from this moment is that uh, Whenever there are divisions within our society, those are things that we have to work on. We have to work on them first because they're ethical and moral requirements uh, for us to actually try and make our society better. But increasingly, we have to see those now also as national security threats. And that's something we haven't done before. Um, and as regards you know, the technology industry and how they play into this, um, there's a huge role uh, for getting Americans reliable, trustworthy information. I think one of the critical things that's going on, and Tony, you know this better than any of us, is the fracturing of the local landscape, the local media landscape. And that is one of the most dangerous things about I think the last decade or so in, in you know, US democracy. And so, I think another area that we have to invest in is is getting back to the roots of, of local democracy, and that means local news uh, and local journalism, and supporting those kinds of institutions because they are the bedrock of our democracy.
0: Here, here, uh, Germa, you <laughs> you want to go next? Yeah, I think it's,
2: I also think it's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I see the mo- this what we can learn from this one is the sort of the fracture in our information um, sphere. Um, no one trusts the information that we're getting and a democracy is very dependent on having some sort of clean information. The whole idea is that it, there's information out there and people can assess it and make choices and no one believes any of the information they're getting. Um, you know, and that's you know to me that's that starts with social media, but it's also these individual media companies too. Um, uh, I'm not really sure how you get out of it with such a with the profit orientation of the news and the fact that news is increasingly less popular um, with all the other entertainment options that are out there. Um, I mean, I would probably start with like maybe beefing up like, you know, public news, like you know, public radio, like yourself. Um, you know, to have an anchor like the BBC of some sort, because it's, it's not like the like the UK, for instance, it's not that like they don't have private um, newspaper outlets that, um, that offer all sorts of information, but they have some sort of information anchor um, where all of our system is really driven by this profit motive. Um, so somehow, um, and I'm not really sure because we, we are not Western Europe. Um, we're much more liberal, small L. Um, and so, but I think getting a hold of the, of the information and somehow Cleaning it up, um, whether that be regulating social media, whether that be somehow establishing some sort of um, bipartisan or multi-partisan uh, news outlet that people can at least get some trustworthy information from. But the, the information aspect to me is the sort of the, the heart of this problem. Um, we've now separated into like two separate information spheres, where you have you can find like a complete different reality in these two information spheres. You can like if there's like an issue that happens like the protests. And then you just survey in news outlets, you'll just get a completely different picture of what's going on. I mean, it's maddening, you know. Like I'll, 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 I'll survey them. Like I, I myself don't even know what's going on. Um, and I just don't. I don't think a democracy can operate that way. And I think it makes it attractive from somewhere. Like you know, um, I mean, if if you if the worry is like China in the future, um, and their ideas are sort of. Uh, if you assume that they want to make sure that uh, their democracies like, like Hong Kong and Taiwan aren't succeeding, the best way would be to admit, would be to do a Russian strategy and to show how democracy doesn't work. Um, and that's really all about, and the reason you can do that is really because our information system is so corrupt, not corrupted, not corrupt. Um, so I think somehow cleaning up our information system spheres and providing some sort of cleaner information so that voters can have something to, to lock onto instead of just purely tribal. Um, I, I think that's that's somewhere to start that we can that's something that I think we should learn in the next ten to
0: fifteen years. I don't think it's gonna happen overnight. Brett?
3: I would agree with everything that my other panelists have mentioned. Uh, you know, I do think having quality journalism, quality information, is sort of at the core of things. One of the the proposals that's been thrown out is is enacting something like a digital tax on ad revenue. That would go into a public media fund to try to support local journalism. You know, we have seen when. Local outlets are shuttered, corruption goes up. I mean, there there's a direct correlation. And we've also, you know, we know from surveys that people trust local media more than they trust national media. And that just makes sense. I mean, Tony, and you're in Cleveland, you you people know you. I mean, they see you on the streets, they tend to kind of have that connection in ways they don't when all of their information is being beamed out from New York or LA or Washington, or who knows where, because of the blog and there's you know no about section. You have no idea where it's being run from. So I, you know, I, I totally agree that, you know, at the core of it is quality information. But I think one of the things we have to be uh, aware of and concerned about is is disinformation and some of these foreign threats It can inspire people to action. And that, you know, is what we're always concerned about in terms of radicalization. But it can also inspire people to inaction. And I think not enough attention is paid to the people who just completely disengage because they either log onto their social media feed or just watch cable television and say this is such a toxic news environment it is easy for me to just disconnect to no longer care uh, i'm going to go play golf and you know just worry about what's happening in my own backyard that's frankly the russian strategy at home uh, you know, I've spent some time in Russia, and you know, you talk to Russians—they don't believe what's coming out of the Kremlin. They just don't know what to believe because they think everyone is lying to them. Everyone has an agenda, so that just creates apathy. Apathy is great if you are an authoritarian, because you don't want people to turn out in the street. But if you're in a democracy and you have an apathetic public, because people are just so tired of how partisan things are, um, you know, not being able to trust what they see you get people to stop voting, who stop volunteering, who stop engaging. And that would be, I think, you know, almost as problematic as having, you know, partisan forces turning out in the street and fighting. Um, So we have to look at kind of the other side of it too. and, And that's people who just, who just get tired of it all and, you know, stop caring.
0: Thank you all uh, very much, and thank you for ending uh, with that endorsement on journalism. This morning, Defund NPR was trending on Twitter, and something I've said in these forums before is it takes a little work, but if you diversify your media sources, it's really going to inform and benefit you in so many ways, and informing yourself is a patriotic act. You can be a patriot on the left or the right but informing yourself about your community and engaging in your community, that is a patriotic act. And really at this time, I think it's a um, a wonderful way to spend energy other than... Um, other than hashtags or or what, what may come. So thank you uh, very much for joining us on today's virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World Forum, featuring Zach Cooper, Senior Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Co-Director for the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Also with us was Dr. Gurma Paris, Visiting Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at Case Western Reserve University. Also with us was Brett Schaefer, Media and Digital Disinformation Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Happy Dog Takes on the World is a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Happy Dog, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies, and IdeaStream. We do appreciate this partnership, and we can put on events like this and inform and engage you. Today's forum is part of the Voting 2020 series sponsored by Sisters of Charity Health System. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by so many generous uh, members and sponsors. You can see all of them at cityclub.org slash thank you. I am Tony Ganser. Our forum is now adjourned. Thank you so much for being here.